uncovering the most amazing stories from the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing, tech, and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. So, Phil, today's guest has been involved in the design industry for over 20 years. And um, you know, her current role, she's involved a lot between design and government and a real strategic role within the whole industry. You've been involved in the um, design industry for at least 300 years or 400 years, apparently. <laughs> but I mean, so what are some of the, you know, what are some of the kind of, how do you, how's that journey gone? What are some of the key things you really think about the industry and our involvement in the industry? Oh, well, that's, that's a really good question. And there's no simple answer to it. So I, I can only talk from experience. What, what I found, because I'm not a designer, you know, my right. background was all typography. And so, and because I built and ran a type business in the 80s, all my clients were designers. And it was when I was meeting those different clients over a period of years that you realize that some of them do an awful lot outside of their day work and they do it for nothing. They do it because they think it's the right thing to do. And there are others that give as little as they can. They think that anything that doesn't uh, earn them money on any given day or takes them away from the, the, uh, their work scenario, they would tend to say no rather than yes. And, and over all of those years, the people I've seen that have been the most successful are the people who've given, given up more in those early years and, right. and i know uh, your company are actually doing it now we'll, we'll get to that later but they're, they're doing it in a in a certain way but and i joined a lot of the design bodies to help so i was on the board of the dba back in the 1980s early 90s and i joined the typographic circle and used to help them organize events and when they were bringing over speakers from overseas and and then I became chairman of the typographic circle for five years. And a lot of the, in fact, not a lot, all of the committee that were there with me were designers. Right. And, and they all were giving their time for free. They were all passionate. They wanted to, you know, when we said, let's bring David Carson over to the UK to speak, uh, saying it and doing it are two very different things. So we suggested it and then making that happen and getting him to speak in London and then Edinburgh. But it was all these volunteers, a couple of them you've already interviewed. Actually, Patrick Bagley was one of them. Oh, that's right. Of course. But, yeah. yeah but, but there was a whole little group of them. There was Dominic Lipper, now at Pentagram. There was Tim Fenley, Robin Richmond, Lynn McIntosh. But they all had one thing in common, that they all wanted to give something back. And what they were giving was their time and we just had a lot of fun doing that. And I, I think sometimes there are some individuals and some people can only see the commercial right. opportunities. And I mean, you, you're a good example, actually, of someone that has recently taken something on that is taking on a life of its own. So <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think obviously couple of comments back is one I suppose from my perspective seeing the, the relationships and the connections and the, and, and the sort of love that you have within the industry would you say a lot of that is because of you know almost like that paying it forward mindset almost like you've really you know gone to events spoken at events done the universities 
been part of the networks and are you sort yeah. of reaping the benefits of that now over I, the think, last I think a lot of the people that I have worked with certainly in the last 17 18 years since I've been independent if you like they're when I trace back the stories of how I met them right there's there's always an element of giving them time at a period in their lives when they were less important and my time to them was more important and they don't need it now they know a lot of these people they're <laughs> running their own businesses quite a few of them uh, are multi-millionaires actually they've done really well and sold their businesses but I don't think they ever forget the people that help them on the journey and I think that's where pay it forward comes Brilliant. in when you actually do something just because it feels right and you're not trying to work out what the end game will Brilliant. be no that's really good and I suppose the project you were referencing was um the design community hub you know and I think as wonderful we're super super proud to be involved in that because for that exact reason I think two reasons one is we want to see the next generation of designers come into the industry get those opportunities whether it be you know, someone looking at their CV or giving them some interview advice or giving them mock interviews or ultimately employing them. I think we you know we we as a as a UK agency economy need to see the next generation of designers and digital people and tech people and copywriters come through because it's so important. I think secondly, you know, being part of an initiative like that where you can give back, you know, where you're not looking at it from a commercial perspective or you're not trying to squeeze a pounds and pence out of it where you're trying to actually help. I think for the whole agency, it's been such a good thing. You know, our younger staff look at that and already I see the benefit, right? Our younger staff look at that and they go, that's cool that we're involved in that. I like that. You know, they, they look at that and go, do you know what? You know, this is an agency. It's not just about the next, you know, campaign or the next project. They're actually giving back. So, I, you know, we didn't do it for the benefit, but I must admit we are seeing that kind of brand benefit internally, which has been brilliant. So get what you're saying. So I think, Phil, we should probably introduce our next guest. I think so. So today's guest has spent an incredible two decades working tirelessly to support and champion the incredible creativity and wealth potential that exists within the UK design and digital sector and the transformative power of design. Her ongoing and long-standing contributions to the design industry have been played out on a global stage and she's received many accolades for her work. I'm delighted to introduce the Chief Executive of the Design Business Association, Deborah Dorton, to the Wonderful People podcast. Hello, Deborah. Hello, Phil. Hello, Dan. Lovely to see you both. Hi, Deborah. Lovely to have you on the podcast. And we're going to get straight into it with a, with a deeper meaningful. So, Deborah, tell, tell the audience, if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, um, I think top of the list, and it would have been until the recent cabinet reshuffle, top of the list would have been Gavin Williamson. <laughs> so probably not everyone's choice <laughs> and it would have been him because I've not been able to get near him for years and I would want to ask him why on earth he has been so hell-bent on following the education policy that our government follows today because of the impact it's having on the creative industries and I mean I know we're going to come on to this in our in the podcast but um I I 
I've read a lot of the stuff that he's written and I could never really get to the bottom of why he 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 followed that course. So naturally I'm just mildly excited <laughs> that he's no longer the education secretary in the UK. And that opens up a huge opportunity for the sector to start right. lobbying again in earnest in um, in government. Oh, whenever I saw him appear, I just kept thinking, of, oh, hello, Betty. <laughs> <laughs> I could never take that seriously because of that. It was just he was Frank Spencer. Yeah. Um, so bye, bye bye, Gavin. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Deborah, I'm not sure I. I actually knew this about you, but you actually studied technical illustration at Bournemouth and Poole College of Art and Design. And then you followed this up with a degree in design for industry. What was it back then that appealed about the industrial side of design and what did you see yourself doing? Oh, uh, technical illustration sounds really glamorous, doesn't it? Um, I was born with an arts and a physics brain and a bit of a maths brain. So a bit of maths thrown in, not, not too much maths. Um, but that was a problem for most schools. So an arts and academic uh, mixture was nigh on impossible to follow in school, um, except that I had a teacher who fought my corner um, and that combination was made possible for me um, in, um, in the last two years of school. She also knew that industrial design existed as a career. So I really not come across it until then. And when I looked at what it involved, I thought, great, cool job. I will earn loads of money doing that. And so I applied to a number of degree courses up and down the country. I was actually in Scotland at the time. I was going through the Scottish education system. Um, and I actually got accepted on all of the courses, except the one that in the end was the one I wanted to go to, which was Newcastle Poly. And I got told in my interview that I wouldn't survive in industrial design as a 17-year-old and as a female. And at the time, I was incensed, but I think they were right. Um, so I was one of those problem ch children. I was born in August. And you, back then, you were either put up a year or you were kept back a year, if I can put it that way. And they put me up a year. So I was always quite young uh, for my year. And so anyway... I'd gone to Newcastle Poly, had this disastrous interview, um, decided it was the place I wanted to go to so I would reapply when I was a year older. But I couldn't find something that, to fill the gap for the year. So I actually then did technical illustration for two years. And it was the teacher uh, that got me into uh, that idea. And in fact, she'd moved um, in my final year at school. She moved to Bournemouth to become the head of course on natural history illustration, which was kind of like the sister course across the corridor. So I followed her. I went to Bournemouth. I did technical illustration for two years. It wasn't very glamorous. I can't say I particularly enjoyed it, but it got me a ticket into Newcastle two years later and I got onto the course that I wanted to to, to really study and I got a full grant uh, which was really important uh, for me. Amazing is there any coincidence then that your husband was an industrial designer? Well no we met at Newcastle so ah. um, I think I spied him across the classroom on day one and thought interesting but <laughs> yeah it probably it wasn't until the third year that I, I finally uh, kind of, I, I had to make the move. Jim was, uh, I mean, Jim was was one of the top designers on the course, but he also uh, developed um, a skill for rowing and um, was selected for the 
for the training squad for the Barcelona Olympics in rowing. Oh, wow. And so for him, there was this decision about Newcastle and finish the degree course or go and uh, take part in the Olympics. And I like to say he gave up the Olympics for me, but he just didn't. It was he came back to study. Um, and he got me as a as a as a bonus. As so a bonus. Uh, so I was really happy that he came back. I was going to say that I've, having met Jim, yeah. Uh, when you say you you glimpsed him across the room, he's quite hard not to notice, really, wouldn't he? Yeah, all six foot five of him. Six wow. foot five. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, be careful what you say, mate. <laughs> Mar- marginally taller than us. Yeah. Well, I, the picture, I, I have a lasting picture of Phil talking to Jim um, in a bar somewhere. And um, afterwards, Jim said to me, uh, who's that lovely guy that I've just been talking to? And uh, so I was telling him about Phil and um, he said uh, he was so lovely. He spoke into my ear the whole time. Jim's biggest problem out socially is that being ahead above everybody, actually it's right. really hard for tall people to hear. So so Jim does, he kind of does the splits when we're out socially <laughs> to drop his head down to conversation height. But Phil has, and I think any, anyone who knows Phil will know he does this. He has this natural lean in thing um, that means that when he's talking to you, it's like it, it's it, it's he's totally in the space um, and uh, and physically actually gets closer. And Jim loved it. So he's he's fun. never forgotten you, Phil. <laughs> it's really good. Actually, now, while we're on the subject of him spreading his legs to oh, actually dear. to come down to my level, uh, what is this fascination you've got with cranes? Well, do you know what? Uh, I'm trying to think. I I always wanted Meccano as a as a toy as a child, and I never got it. I got Lego, not very much. Um, so we didn't have a, a lot of uh, uh, dosh in our family. And um, I remember the year I got a Lego set, and that was you know I was blown away by it. Um, so that was uh, my prized possession. But I think secretly I always wanted a Meccano set and I never got it. And so uh, cranes have just always held this fascination for me. I've I've never been big on the engineering side. So industrial designers typically will work with engineers. And there's a bit of the engineering of cranes that just fascinates me. How that thing stays up there and does whatever it does is, you know, with a lump of concrete at one end and yeah. And also I, I suffer from vertigo. So I think there's, um, mm-hmm. you know, when people really like something that is very close to the thing they find most frightening, <laughs> there's a bit of that. I look at the man in the box and apparently it's men in the driving seat of cranes and you drive cranes apparently. And I just think, you wouldn't catch me up there for you. You could have a million quid sitting on the chair <laughs> in, in a crane cab and there is no way I would go up to get it. Oh, that's wow. lovely. But you take pictures of them, don't you? you I do. Around, uh, you I are. do. Right. I'm going to move away from this one because I don't want people thinking you're weird. <laughs> the, the things you learn on a podcast is amazing, isn't it? <laughs> um, your career took you in a different direction. You actually went into the business side of design and set up your own company very soon after graduating. A rather entrepreneurial move. Can you tell us a bit more about your early career? Yeah, so um, I graduated from industrial design only just, um, but you know, kind of a third is a is a is a degree. I knew by the end of the course I didn't want to do it. I was only ever going to be an average designer, and as you all now know, I'd bagged myself the best uh, designer on the course. And so, um, but the one thing I loved was I loved talking about it. So even it's at, at um, 
Newcastle Poly, you know, we got some of the best people to come to the, the degree show and so on. And that kind of organizing that had fallen into, into my lap. And so um, talking about it, and of course, I, I think design, it doesn't matter whether you do design or not. I think when you've studied it, you've kind of been bitten by the bug. And my first job was actually with the RSA. Um, I was desperate for work. Jim and I had the biggest overdraft you've ever seen. Industrial design is a very expensive course uh, to do. In fact, I remember at the time reading that it costs as much to train industrial designers as it does medical students. And I reckon that's probably still the case today. Anyway, we had this hoofing overdraft and we just had to get money in. And I was not going to get a job as a, um, as a designer. And my first job was with the RSA as their conference sales executive. So I would run around the RSA house on John Adams Street selling it as a venue. And then when Heather and Johnny Ive moved to the States, Heather was in the design department at the RSA. She knew I had this industrial design background because we knew them. And, um, and so she recommended me for her job. Um, she was leaving... Uh, I got interviewed, I got the job, and so I started on their Student Design Awards, and that opened me up to meetings, judging panel sessions with the good and the great of the industry across all of the different design disciplines. And when you've seen that, the idea of going into one discipline just seems too myopic. And so at that point, I knew that whatever the next step was, it needed to be something that brought me into contact with the breadth of you know, brilliant designers that we've got in this country across all of the different design disciplines um, that we excel in. And the only way to do that was to get an events job at the Design Council, DNAD, the CSD, or probably one or two other organizations. I went and checked that all of their events managers were healthy and unlikely to pop their clogs anytime soon. So I wasn't going to get those jobs. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll create my own job. I'll set up my own company and uh, we'll do what they do commercially into those organizations. And that's what happened. Brilliant. Okay, Dan. So just listening to that only for a few minutes, you know, your, your proof, like a designer can be a strategist, a planner in business, in sales. Did all of that come naturally or have these things, have you learned them over time and grown over time? Um, I, I think you get different types of designers. Um, so um, I would say, I, I would say I've definitely grown into some of those skills over time. So um, as you uh, develop in the roles that you're in, you'll develop the skills that you need um, to be able to do a job really well. Um, if you'd said to me 20 years ago that I would have to make the case for design to a bunch of politicians, I'd have said, no, thanks. You know, it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that I would want to do. Um, I, th I think it's something I'm probably quite good at now. Um, it wasn't something I was as good at as, as, as good at then. And uh, what I'm appreciative of is the fact that there are brilliant designers out there. And so you kind of need you need great designers in this world because if I'm going to advocate for them, they've got to be really good at what they do. Um, so I think you do grow and develop um, as the needs have changed over the times, the time that I've been at the DBA. So the skills have, have needed to change and what the organization does has needed to change. Um, the constant for me is 
we we have a country of brilliant designers and my job is to make that environment as conducive um to them being able to you know exhibit their skills um as as i as i can do brilliant i think we're going to talk about the dba now aren't we phil yeah and well dan dan's company wonderful are actually members of the dba so i i should be asking dan why he's a member but actually i prefer to ask you deborah you know what what is it that when you go out chatting to the design agencies uh, or digital agencies i should have what do you tell them that you're going to do for them and how does that work in reality because i think you've doubled the membership haven't you in the time that you've been there yeah so um I, I remember when I first arrived at the DBA, I remember it being in a meeting and saying to someone, look, there's no one at the DBA who knows how to run a trade association. <laughs> they, they, their face dropped in horror. Mine was lit up with, uh, with glee um, because th- for me, it meant that we wouldn't look and feel like all the other trade associations that I'd been out and spoken to. Because if you, if you don't know how to run a trade association, you go and ask the people who are doing it um, what, the, what, the, what the job is. And the problem was I couldn't really see an example of of something that was one that um, we would we would pick up and emulate. And um, I think it it became apparent. I think probably it took a couple of years really to to sort that stuff out. And for me, it's really simple now. Trade associations are usually there to do two things. One is they champion their sector. So in our case, the design industry, and they and they help professionalize it. So our job is to make sure that the industry is, is always fit for purpose. And the, the great thing about the design industry, of course, is that it doesn't, it doesn't stay the same. Um, so we are constantly looking at what's on the horizon to determine, okay, well, how do we pull the design industry towards what the market needs are of, of the future? Um, and there's a trade association it's a pretty unglamorous term but i kind of like things that say what they do on the tin type thing Mm. um and anything that impacts the ability of a design firm to trade in the uk is my concern it's it's my job to make sure that the context for design in the uk enables it to flourish um and that keeps changing and so my job keeps changing and believe it or not there was a time when for example um social media didn't exist. I was trying to think of an example, a tangible example of something, but we could see that brands were moving in the dire- in that direction. They they wanted to see what their brands were like, what they were, what, how they would be manifest in in digital, in social media. And so we used to run training courses on Twitter and how to tweet and LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, now we don't do it now, and it seems laughable now, but that's our concern. Um, and if I was to look to something that uh, it applies to today. Our, our concern today, for example, is the future talent um, that will fuel businesses. I think there's a, a big issue there. I think there's another concern over sustainable development. So I, I actually think every design business in the land is going to change over the next three years. I used to think sustainability could be an add-on. Um, so first and foremost, you know, if, if, you, if you behave well as a, as a business and you're sustainable in your endeavors, great. And then if you add it into your proposition, um, then uh, even better, you know, opportunity for more work. But I think my thinking on this has changed. I think there will come a time where you cannot move without needing to prove that you that everything you do meets a level of sustainable development because of 
what's happening you know in, in in the world today and so our job is to work out okay how do we how do we make that digestible for design businesses you know you're full-on doing what you do so how do we start to feed um the knowledge and the understanding that the industry needs into the industry in order to keep it top of its game uh, two three years from now can I ask you you're working all around the country with agencies you know scotland north of england that are there any common traits that they've all been experiencing during this last pandemic year probably probably longer than a year actually now but is there anything that's a common thread amongst all of them that you're you're seeing um i think the the big issue for most people was getting information fast that would enable them to make fast decisions or informed decisions um and you know none of us had heard the word furlough 18 months ago Mm. um and um to some extent the the, you know it's funny how fast you forget stuff i can remember i had the dba team were having to work over the weekends to start with because the government kept announcing stuff on fridays and if you're running a business and an announcement is made on a Friday, you know, the anxiety is with you over the weekend until you can actually start to do something about it on the Monday. And within two weeks, there would be another government announcement. And so part of the challenge for us was, well, how on earth do we interpret what we heard on Friday, given that it's going to change in another two weeks time? And so the the, the two things that we were able to do was uh, set up um we, we were doing weekly re- webinars to start with um in order to get the information into people in as clear a way as as w- we could uh make it in that period of time um and uh we were drawing on the expertise of people who knew how to interpret the information um the second thing was that actually government reached out to us and they said look uh, we need to understand how what we're doing and what we're saying impacts the design industry. And so I, I used to have a weekly call with DCMS, um, and that's happening fortnightly now. But it was a great way, actually, of, of getting them to start to understand the implications of their policies on our sector. And you know, one of the things that I remember them saying is that they, they now consider the design industry kind of an early indicator sector. They're one of the ones that they would come to for feedback. Um, because we will have digested things and and we we feed back really fast. So furlough to start with, I don't know if you remember, it had to be one person off for three weeks and then you could bring them back in. And if you brought them in anything shorter than three weeks, you lost your three weeks money. And part of our lobbying into government changed that rule because we were able to say to them, look, a design business of 10 people isn't 10 designers. You can't just put seven of them on furlough and leave three of them to do the bit of work that's left. It's more like a football team. There are 11 players. They've all got different skills. But if you lose your striker and in week three of a project, you need your striker back, they've just they've lost furlough. And so we we're able to feed that back and they changed the rules. And other industries, mm. of course, were feeding back as well. But um, I think the common... The common thread for everyone was I need information. I need it fast because I need to be making fast decisions in my business. That's brilliant. Can I just ask a question then around, we're talking a lot about the design industry and obviously the DBA, but the design industry is kind of, you know, we're known for being quick to adapt and forward thinking and innovative because that's the nature of who we are and what we do. What have you seen from your members and maybe even the wider industry that's really kind of inspired you in the last year or two? 
Um, I think it has been the ability to adapt. Um, right. So um, the, 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 it's, it's well documented that there's an optimism bias in the creative industries. So, so we gener generally, we're glass half full people. And so I sometimes think that if you back the design industry into a corner, you will actually get their best ideas out of them. It's, it kind of, it rings true because if you give anyone a deadline in the, in the creative industries, they've usually not finished the work two weeks early. There's something about the adrenaline that kicks in as you're approaching the deadline to get something done that means that your best work comes out of you. Um, it's a trait I, I still have. So design effectiveness awards, every year I write a speech it happens if you're lucky it happens by midnight the night before it's normally still happening during the next day during the day of the awards and it's there's something about the deadline and the adrenaline that that causes your brain to I don't it's kind of the the magic stuff isn't it it just you just seem to be able to cut through all the crap and and you get to the the the, the nub of, right. of the thing that you need to do and I think the industry has has done that they found themselves backed into a corner over the last year two years um, and it's forced them to potentially come out with some of their best work to rethink their businesses to reevaluate their proposition into the market um, and for those that went into it in a good financial position I think it's probably afforded them the time to think and change things and dial things up that will set them for the next 10 years. No, great. Uh, it's really hard to get the time, isn't it, to work on your business as opposed to, to in it. And I think that's just what's happened. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Great. Yeah, no, I can, I can, I'm a testament to lots of those things. So, yeah, really get that. Can I just also quickly ask you about another role that your involvement with? Is it BIDA, the Bureau of European Design Agencies? What's your yep. involvement there? And again, I suppose, has that been affected by Brexit or COVID? How does, how does that kind of look? Yeah, so it's the, it's the Bureau of European Design Associations, and um, it's made up of lots of DBAs from across Europe and right. uh, design councils, that type of thing. Um, I, we joined it as an association because at the time, and this is probably going back 2007, we did this quite early on, um, I couldn't get in it. I, I could get nowhere with UK governments. And when I looked at what was happening in other countries, you know, I'd look at my friends in Estonia and they were having dialogue with, with their government. Or I'd look at the friends in, in Luxembourg and I thought, I just could go and find out how these guys are doing this. Why is it that when we're banging on the door, you know, that it, it doesn't open to us? Well, you then start to realize some countries are very much smaller than others. Uh, so some of them are the size of Leeds. So it's perhaps no surprise that they're talking to the government if their population is the size of Leeds. Um, and, but with, there are also other bigger countries. And so it was, it, for me, it was, a, it was a means of learning how to talk to government. And in actual fact, what happened was that um, UK design industry has got a, a very good reputation uh, we were seen as market leaders and in fact as a result of being president of that association um, I was pulled onto an expert panel at a European level to look at the role of design in the European Commission's innovation policy there's a mouthful um, and that is what opened the door back into the UK I think the UK suddenly thought oh, hang on a minute 
you know, one of the CEOs of a UK association, in fact, three CEOs of UK associations made it onto this 15 strong panel. Most other countries had one person on it. Um, and so there's something about the reputation of the sector um, in the UK that meant that that started to open up that uh, that dialogue with, with government. It was kind of like, well, hang on, if the Europeans are using British expertise to influence their policy, perhaps you know, we should be too. So that was one of the reasons for doing that. It was to learn how to do it. Wow. Um, and also to gauge what was going on in other countries. Um, so it's the only way you can really work out what makes British design different to uh, design in other countries. And I'd say that there is a um, uh, that there is a, a commercial effectiveness. And I would some people would say, of course, you're going to say that you run the Design Effectiveness Awards. But there's a commercial awareness that UK design has that other countries design. Uh, sectors don't have and and i think that's your winning ticket in in overseas markets I know Brilliant. you're not allowed to pick favorites when you've got so many members but uh, which companies and individuals have inspired you the most in recent years that they don't have to be from your membership but i think they probably will be so. <laughs> um uh, uh, well, you know, it's been different people at different times. Um, and I think in part, it's because of what you learn from people. Um, so uh, I'm going to embarrass Mr. Phil Jones here. Um, Ooh, Phil, cool. uh, for me, you, you're a consummate networker. But, but it's actually more than that. I think a lot of people would say they're really good at networking. Uh, for me, you go above and beyond. Um, and there's, there's certainly always the feeling that nothing is too much to ask. And I, I think Claire is like you. I think the two of you are an amazing team. And Babs is there as well, isn't she? <laughs> the, just the, like the amazing family. There's, a, there's such a display of generosity of spirit um, that I wish that it was something everyone, everyone could learn. And that's something that I've learned. Um, you know, you're, you're about to fly out of the door and the phone call goes and it's a student who says kind of what's my next move and actually you just want to put the phone down and go out for the drink and you think ah, I could change someone's life it's worth having the call my husband um is is someone else who inspires me the rigor of thinking that goes into anything that he does um astounds me and he's one of the few people who ever says to me my brain hurts at the end of a day um it's kind of like how much of him is invested in trying to solve the problems of the, of the, wow. the, the people that he works with um i can talk about uh, so david stewart he's kind of not in the business anymore founder of the partners um what i admired in him was this ability to be so creative with and it was based on vast knowledge and understanding so he was the person who made Germans I took him to a conference as a speaker and he made the Germans laugh about the second world war that takes <laughs> that takes a, a, a very clear understanding of, of culture and history for that to happen and I I I lament the fact that the industry doesn't read as broadly as I think it should you can do that stuff if you are uh, well versed in in the subjects that, you, that you're working in and then I actually think there, there I'm not going to name individual companies, but there are a group of companies. Um, I've, you know, I've started telling them who they are. I decided obituaries are, are, are pretty depressing uh, things to write. And why aren't we telling the people who do a great job in this industry that they're doing a great job while they're doing it? 
And I think we all know there are a suite of companies who have been around for tens of years, 30, 40 years. That is to be admired. This is an industry that is um, regularly battered by peaks and troughs um, in markets. And I think to be able to navigate that and keep your business as focused and purposeful today as it was 40 years ago, that in itself is an achievement. And that motivates me to to, to want, to, you know, it's back to the point I made earlier, that motivates me to want to make sure that the context in which you're all operating is the best it possibly, it, it possibly can be. Brilliant. I feel like, Phil, I feel like if you're listening to this podcast and you're not in the creative industries, you're literally going to change jobs now and change careers. <laughs> I'm listening to Deborah. I feel like there's going to be doctors and lawyers and accountants listening to this and they're just going to ditch their job and start a design agency. I think it's that's brilliant. a great idea. I think it's brilliant. Well, on that point, Deborah, obviously you are, you know, completely passionate and, and very knowledgeable about what you do. And I know there's a few areas that you're a real advocate for. Now, we can't cover them all off now but you can have a soapbox moment. I think let's chat about a few of them. And, and, you know, we started the podcast talking about Gavin Williamson, but do you have strong views on the state of creative education, for example, in the UK? Tell us a little bit about how you see that. Mm, it's my favourite subject. Oh, wow. uh, that and oh, sustainability wow. <laughs> or sustainable development, my two favourite subjects at the moment. Wow. Um, so where would I start to, to, to talk about this succinctly? Um, I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot on this one. Um, I think if we want great music, great theatres, great apps, great festivals, great hospitals, great public services, we need mountains of, of great creatives because those things, are, they're never going to go away. But for me, creative education is bigger than that. Um, it's not just about producing the talents that the creative industry needs that, that you know, provides us with all of the services and the gigs and the books that we read and, and, and so on. Um, it also produces creative consumption. Um, you know, we listen to music as kids. We draw as kids. Um, that listening to music probably leads to a better music appreciation when we're older. Drawing as kids lead, might lead us to a better appreciation of great drawing. I, mean, I don't know anyone who wouldn't look at a Leonardo da Vinci drawing and think that that is a pretty good drawing. And it's actually quite inspiring that someone was, was that gifted and talented and able to do that. Um, you know, we might take part in the school play and it leads us to a better appreciation of plays. Um, and I think if we've learned anything over the last 18 months, it's that when people switch off, they have to find a release. Um, that, um, you know, that work isn't your be all and end all. And if it was, then you've, probably just had a really hard time of it and it's the things that we turn to that become really important so you don't have to play the guitar uh, or be a musician to find uh, solace in music um, you don't have to be a poet to find um, comfort in poetry uh, you don't have to be an actor to lose yourself in three seasons of fantasy whatever on Netflix and so I think creative education is as important for people who don't come into the creative industries as it is those that do, um, because it leads to a greater appreciation of it. Um, and I would argue if you're not good enough, if you're not good enough to go into creative, go down the STEM route. Um, we need the best brains coming into creativity because the scale of the and the complexity of the issues that businesses are facing now are not for the faint hearted. 
Um, so we need brilliant designers. We need brilliant academics. You know, we need brilliant politicians. Um, but at the end of the day, I think everyone needs an element of, of creativity in their lives because it's usually the thing they turn to when they're not in the office. Apart from all of us, of course, who just get to indulge in it 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Brilliant. And that brings us nicely onto an initiative that you've been involved with. And in fact, several of us have been involved in, including Wonderful, from a digital perspective, the Design Community Hub. Tell us what it's all about and what you and your fellow founders are hoping to achieve. Um. The, I think the way to sum it up um, is it's about keeping people connected with our industry. Um, and for those of us that have been in the industry for a few years, um, we've gone through a couple of recessions. And I'm, I remember in 2008, um, you know, a lot of people lost their jobs back then and they never came back into the design industry. Um, and the other thing we weren't doing is we weren't recruiting into the industry for a good few years around about then. So uh, there are actually very few designers around today with 10 to 13, 14 years experience. And it's because we weren't pulling them in and training them and developing and they weren't working in our businesses 10 to 13 years ago. And we carry that gap with us um, in the industry. And I don't think we could let this happen again. There was no doubt that COVID just put you know, the, 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 the um, barriers down on, on people getting jobs. We have graduates graduating um, uh, in 2019, 2020, particularly um, that weren't going to be getting the internships. Um, you know, when you think of the final year students who normally would be getting experience in our businesses, none of that was able to happen. And what we can't do is afford to lose that talent. Um, and so the idea of the design community hub really came about as, as a way of saying, okay, how do we keep them in touch with us? You know, until such time as the businesses start to recover and we can pull them in, uh, then how do we keep them in touch with us? And so um, I would say that um, we want the industry to, to throw open its doors. We need the industry to throw open its doors. We need that generosity of spirit um, to be uh, prevalent in, in all design businesses. So if you're having a staff event, invite a couple of extra people and tell the design community hub and, and we'll get the people into your events. If you've got some time to do some extra portfolio reviews, tell us and we'll find some students or some graduates that need that type of help. Um, if you've got a spare time, some spare time to record a masterclass, um, tell us there are people who want to continue to develop their skills they're not in jobs at the moment they need access to all the material they can get why don't you do something like that if you can take an intern tell us and that way we get to fill the gaps design community help is, is there to fill the gaps um, and so we want those that are desperately trying to get into our industry to get in touch with us and to to log into that platform and for those that have that generosity of spirit to give them a helping hand, um, to give them a helping hand. And um, I think all of us can probably point to kind of the lucky breaks. And it was the advice that someone gave us. It was, the, it was just the, the, the door that was open to us at a time when the chips were down. And I think people need to think about how they can pay that back, but 10 times over. Um, I think there's one, if I'm allowed one other thing, um, I would say that, um, I think we need to put other people first. Um, 
So we need to consider our own discomfort if it brings comfort and benefit to others. And the reason I say that is that um, I think there's a problem bubbling away in our sector at the moment, which is that graduates are finding it very hard to get into our businesses because we're not going back to our offices. And they learn from doing and from being with us and from hearing um, how we do business day to day. And uh, there is a, a swathe of the industry. Um, we probably all fit into this age bracket who are quite comfortable. We've got nice homes. Uh, working at home isn't a problem for us, but there's a swathe of the industry um, that doesn't have it as, 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 as good yet. Um, and if I have to go into the office because it means that two or three other people can benefit, you know, I may not want to go into the office, but they benefit. That's what I'm asking people to consider is... Don't just think, I don't want to do the commute. Think, do you know what? I'm going to do the commute today because it's going to benefit these five other kids in the office. And there is an agency I know of who have recruited five graduates, and I applaud them for doing it. Um, if you can't take one, if you don't think one will make the difference, employ five, because suddenly it feels worthwhile, doesn't it? If I have to go to the office for all five of them, even better. I think it's genius. Take on five graduates, not one, and then you will make the effort to go in and make sure that they're, they're um, mentored and, and encouraged and enthused, and it'll pay back dividends into your business. That's lovely. So, Dan, your team, like everybody else involved in this uh, project, they're all giving their time for free. Nobody's asked for anything. Uh, the website URL is www.thedesigncommunityhub. So uh, Deborah's already said they need to get on and offer help to us, don't they? Yes, please. So over to you, Dan, because I'm, that's my last question. Done for the day. I was okay, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to put the kettle on very shortly. Put the kettle on, some, okay. I'm going to get some dunkers out. Get some maybe, dunkers out. Maybe a couple of ginger nuts. <laughs> right, well, I'll carry on then. I? Okay, <laughs> just, a, just a couple of questions there. We'll just we come sure. to land because we can talk to you all day, but um, I'm sure you've got other things to do as well. Now, obviously, one before you know, we're we, we're you know a creative agency at heart, but very much digital first. It's the same with you know design community hub, with digital first community. What I mean, what are some of the your favourite things, or some of the things you've seen that have come out, you know, come about really from the shift in digital and tech and you know, not just even recently, but over time, you know, as the kind of whole industry has moved on and what's been positive about that from your experience? I know there's challenges as well, but what are some of the things that you thought, do you know what, the industry's moved on well in this area? Yeah. Um, so you, I knew you were going to ask me this, so I've had time to think about it. <laughs> um, and um, I think, uh, well, I know, we've had mobiles in our hands for a long time. Um, and, you know, the advent of the mobile, um, particularly the iPhone, um, just it changed the way we, we, we all live. I think service innovation has been really slow. So we've had this thing that is capable of doing a lot, but I think service innovation has been slow. Um, and um, physical services moving into a digital domain done really well is still I think a rare thing so I actually think I'm talking about there's a huge opportunity here and we're quite lucky at the DBA again with the design effectiveness awards we've seen some of these examples great examples there was a, an app 
um, that enabled young people to um, who have a propensity to self-harm to deal with that desire as, as, as it arises. Wow. Um, and I just think it would be amazing as a designer to think that because of something you designed, a child or a young person didn't cut themselves yesterday or today or tomorrow. And so I don't think I don't think the full impact of digital has has really been felt. I think the potential is enormous. Um, I think the fact that this app exists and other things are coming onto the market is is amazing. Um, and um, I think it's uh, one of the things that we really need to be pushing for. And I don't think it's because designers don't see the potential. I think it's because the service providers don't see the potential. So, so actually, we've got to get really good at telling people what the potential of these things is, because they can't imagine it, we can. Um, and then we've got to persuade them to to invest in it and, and, and deliver it. And it will continue to change, change lives. Yeah, agreed. Um, I said that as my last question, but I've changed. Yeah, you I've go, changed go, my, go away. Yeah, you obviously couldn't find the ginger nuts. I, I, well, Babs is not here to sort out. Like, where where did you keep the ginger nuts? Uh, no, I saw Martin Sorrell on the TV this week, and he was talking about the figures within the group, his group That's actually right. being improving and doing, doing better. But uh, an interesting thing he said was that 50% of all the work that the group are doing is digital. And by 2024, he expects that to be 70%. So, and that's, that's huge. Like yeah. for what was a, a traditional group, you know, back in his WPP days, but does that reflect what you're seeing around the country with the agencies that are members of the DBA? Um. So I completely understand why he's saying that when you look at what his group does, um, but it's not the case for all business out there. So, um, uh, so the example, so we, we, we may not all own cars in the future, but we'll still need to get around. Um, we may not all wear as many or as, you know, a varied a wardrobe of clothes as we do now, but we'll still be wearing clothes. You know, I'll still be buying gin. I, I could probably <laughs> forego the tonic, you know, cut down on some, <laughs> some glass waste there. But I, I would argue we still all want to fly. I don't think that's really changed. The thing people really want to do at the moment is get out of the country, isn't it? Yeah. Um, we still all want smart homes. We still want, you know, the next best thing. We'll all still be getting sick. Um, so for me... Digital is a channel that offers us a way to, to deliver experiences, perhaps uh, more economically, perhaps more directly, uh, more succinctly. And, and so, of course, we need designers who know how to do that brilliantly well. But, but that's just one avenue of the experiences that we all have. So um, completely, I, I understand why he's saying that, but we are not going to stop consuming things the, the way that we did. And so we need really good designers designing that stuff because um we need it to have a much smaller impact um than it's having at the moment yeah brilliant right. phil go get your dunkers now go, go, go <laughs> get your tea, tea and your dunkers so final question um it's a question we ask all of our guests but as an agency we're all about making complex things wonderfully simple what's one of life's complexities you would like to see made simpler um 
you know, you probably got all the usual stuff, don't you? Opening a jar, um, changing a car tire. That really bugs me. Um, <laughs> so um, although I'm trying to, I'm, I'm working out a bit more. So hopefully building up upper body strength. So, you know, I should be able to change it more easily next time. Um, do you know, changing the element in my cooker, in my oven, that was, a, I'm not going to go there. That still makes me angry. Um, the fact that I bought something that I thought was well designed and it took a day to take it apart and change something because there's no cat in hell's chance that I'm letting that go into landfill. But uh, I've got, I've, I'm afraid I've got a bit of a humdinger for you. And top of my list would be to make sustainable development simpler to understand. I don't think we quite know where to go for, for information on all of this stuff. And we tend to talk about sustainability as a bit of a, an add-on. I've always done that. Um, but things are changing. I think it's something that's changed enormously in the last 18 months. Um, the way it's reported, um, the way the impacts are being measured and so on. Now, I've, I've got the, the benefit of being able to talk to a Jedi master in sustainable development. Um, and she's a very lovely woman called Cara Santos. But not everyone is going to be able to because she's one person and obviously there's a capacity for what one person can do. But, and I've mentioned this already, your ability to get your head around sustainable development in the next couple of years, I think, will determine if you're in business three years from now. That's the change, I think, that's just happened in the last 18 months. And it's, this is brain ache material for me. If you know, I'd rather bake cakes than try and get my head around this stuff. Um, but fortunately for me, Cara is really patient. Um, I'm meeting up with her next week, actually, to, um, to go through some, some, some ideas. Wow. And perhaps even as little as four weeks ago, I think I thought that sustainability for the design industry was, you know, us behaving well as businesses, you know, switching the lights off at night and um, turning our computers off. And possibly for others, it might involve um, a sustainable proposition, you know, so something that, that the clients who wanted it could have. Um, but I think it just, you know, in the last four to eight weeks, I think I've, I've come to realise that it's actually much bigger than that. Um, it's something that all businesses uh, will need to um, uh, commission into everything that they do because the impact of, of what you do um, has, has such a, a, an astounding impact on other things. And in fact, Cara was telling me about the fact she's working with a company who, who sell food um, and uh, they make recipes. They have to buy recipes of ingredients to make their product but they're buying the ingredients from all over the world. And sustainable development isn't just about the packaging that this food goes into. It's about the ingredients that go into the food. So I hate to say it, Phil, but your, your jammy dodger or your, your ginger nuts, you know, unless we start growing um, ginger in the UK, um, it may be a thing of the, a thing of the past. And, 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 and it affects all of these things. Um, so I think from a digital agency point of view, I would have thought one of the biggest issues is about the storage of, of data. Of data, yeah. Um, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a huge, um, uh, there's a huge uh, bill of consumption um, around all of that. And, but you know, how we just as normal little businesses get our heads around this is really important. So again, you know, that's, that's a job for the DBA. It's for me to get my head around this stuff and then look at, okay, how do I feed the useful information into companies so that they can make informed decisions 
about what they do in the future. And you could choose not to do this. Um, that's completely within your prerogative, but I don't think you'll be operating a very successful design business in wow. the not so distant future. So, I think, I think there's Chile uh, to land on. Sort <laughs> <laughs> that, that out for me, Dan, and I'd be really happy. Uh, Deborah, you uh, talk you... the talk, but you also walk the walk because you you grow your own food, don't you? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, uh, but I still have to buy prawns from Sainsbury's. So, uh, and I didn't look at where my prawns were coming from. I think it's just, it's one of those things, isn't it? I don't grow my veg because I'm trying to be more sustainable. I, gr I grow it because it tastes better. Um, and I'm just not very big on flowers. So, um, so and I, I, it, I, I'm also, the, 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 I was brought up in Scotland. There's a little bit of the, of the, the, uh, the frugal streak in me that says that um, I'm not going to pay £3.50 for Cavallo Nero from the shop when I can grow it for tuppence in the back garden. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've got loads of Cavallo Nero, by the way. If anyone's in Streatham <laughs> and they need Cavallo Nero, uh, Beckmead Avenue is the place to come. Brilliant. Oh, oh, that's fantastic. Great interview. I know. And, and this, this kids, is why you should be a member of the DBA. Yes, join the DBA. Do you know, I could change the world to much faster if, if we double the budget. And our money comes from the industry. You know, the, the, the DBA <clears throat> is the industry's um, association. Our money comes from, it's hard-earned. Dan, thank you for your money. It's, <laughs> it's hard-earned by agencies, and so we have to put it to really good use. But we could do more if we had more money, and that just requires more people to join. So if you're worried about your business and where it will be in 10 years' time, the DBA is the place to join. We'll there solve we that one. You heard it here first. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right. The Phil Jones jingle at the end. <laughs> we should have that as a soundbite. That should be, no. you know, I like that. I do Deborah. have. To, I do have to say one last parting thing is that you you are so generously kind talking about my wife Babs and Claire, and you've missed out my my, my little boy, my PJ. Who yeah, I've probably not had that many dealings with him, have I? No, and he is the brains of the operation, I could tell you. Right. He, he makes the rest of us look really... Yeah, it's the quiet, um, silent ones in the background, isn't it, that really make it tick. And he's about to become a daddy for the first time in January. Fantastic. So here's to PJ, and thank you, Deborah. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Deborah. tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.